Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Amen. That is a great song to sing as we look at the message tonight. How We looked last week on how to live in, in evil times and uh, acknowledge the fact we do live in a day and age in which things are getting increasingly uh, difficult, more hostile uh, for the people of God. Uh, we talked about Noah as the example. Uh, great to look at an example. And we saw that he was a man who believed trusted God's promises, believed God's warnings, acted upon them. Uh, He prepared an ark to the saving of his household. He was concerned about his family. Uh, And he was a preacher of righteousness. He he was a sermon in shoes. He lived and preached daily uh, righteousness. And and although we we never have a sermon that is recorded by him, uh, we do have a sermon recorded by him, the whole story of his uh, righteous living and obedience to God. Tonight I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and this is kind of a part two, if you want to call it that, uh, a little, taking, going a little bit different uh, angle at this. Uh, as you're turning there, let me just mention to you several things I found out in studying for this uh, message. Researchers studied 177 different opinion polls that included over 220,000 people of all types, all political persuasion, all religious beliefs. And uh, you know what they found? 84%, this is going to shock you, but 84% believed that morality had declined in the U.S. I'm not shocked. That's a shocking thought. Uh, What's interesting in this study was they said that they looked at previous studies that had been done through the years, and as far as they could go back, people had always felt that way, that morality was declining uh, in their lifetime. Worldwide, in similar studies, the percentage is very similar. It's within a point or two, uh, 84 to 86% uh, believe that that the world is declining morally. Now, the problem with the study is that people define morality differently. The people who would say that would say it for all different reasons. Uh, There are people today who would say that we are immoral because we don't accept uh, homosexuality or gay marriage as as normality, or that we defend traditional marriage. That, That that is a, in some people's minds, that is an evidence of lack of morality on our part. So that's what kind of flaws that study a little bit. But you know what? They're still right. Um, I, I, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize that morality in our world, in our country particularly, has been declining at such a rapid rate that it is stunning. It is breathtaking. Even unbelievers comment on what they see happening in our society. Uh, You may remember, uh, probably it's been 12, 14 or so years ago, then President Barack Obama was defending traditional marriage. 
Uh, now President Joe Biden, in the same period, uh, defended the Defense of Marriage Act. Uh, today, someone taking that position is considered to be living in the Stone Age, or maybe is a danger to society within a decade. I mean, that, that is stunning. The speed at which opinion has changed on these things uh, is stunning. Many of these same leaders today are seeking to impose upon us the fantasy of transgenderism uh, without any argument. You're just supposed to accept it. You're just supposed to believe it. Uh, you know, there, there's not just men and women. There's all kinds of in-betweens. I was in the airport flying through LAX not too long ago, and there was uh, a bathroom for men, a bathroom for women, and a bathroom for others. <laughs> it, it, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. We live in a nation that is going morally downhill very quickly. And many of these issues that we've just mentioned and others like that are going to be used against the church, uh, against uh, Christian institutions, against colleges, against uh, other Christian organizations to remove federal funding or other things if you don't toe the line and don't agree with uh, our government on these things. I'm not going to take the time tonight, but let me just encourage you to go home, slowly, carefully read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, very slowly, and thoughtfully see how God is revealing his wrath on the world today. Well, that's all depressing. That's not our text. Our text is Philippians 2.15. And I'd like you to, to, to look here. In fact, I'm going to start reading at verse 14, where we are told to do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul acknowledges that we live in a crooked and perverse generation. But he says we are, God's people, are not to be involved with complaining, disputing, questioning, arguing, but rather are to shine as lights in this crooked and perverse generation. This was written at a time in which the Roman government was in charge, or at least to where Paul was living and ministering. And the Roman government was no friend of grace. The Roman government was, was corrupt maybe as corrupt as any government we've, we've seen uh, even today. And yet they are told in this epistle to serve with joy. They are told to work out their salvation uh, with fear and trembling. Uh, they are not to complain. They're not to gripe. But they are to be lights in this world. Jesus said something very similar in, John, in Matthew chapter 5 when he said to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. No matter how dark the world, we as God's people are to shine 
as lights and glorify our Father which is in heaven. That is our responsibility. That is our job as believers today. That is our job as a church today. And so the question really is, in the coming months and years, how do we shine? How do we let our light shine? Is there any practical instruction in the New Testament about how we living in evil days should let our light shine? And I believe we're going to find tonight some principles. We're going to walk through some passages. Usually, typically when I preach, I like to preach from a, one passage expositionally, verse by verse. Tonight we're going to look at a, at a, at a topic. Uh, but I want us to look at it from the Scripture. And so we're going to turn to several passages tonight. That means you're going to have to work. The, I'm not going to put them on the, on the screen for you. You're going to have to open your Bibles. You're going to have to, to look, old-fashioned, turning the pages, find these and, and read these these passages, because I think it's important for us to see in the context how important it is for us in our day and age to live out these principles. The first principle I'm going to give you is a pretty broad principle that pervades every time, all, all ages. In fact, all these principles work in every age. But many of them are particularly given to us in light of the day and age in which we live. So before we start on that, let's, let's pray. Let's ask God's blessing uh, and seek God's favor as we look into his word tonight. Heavenly Father, I, I do pray that you would help us tonight as we, as we look at these things and consider the day and age we live. Lord, that we would not be complainers, that we would not be disputers, that we would not be arguing and debating. Um, but Lord, that we would be lights brightly shining, giving glory to our Heavenly Father. I pray, Lord, that you will just guide my words tonight as I speak. Help me not to say anything uh, unscriptural. I pray that you would uh, fill me with your spirit. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds as we listen tonight to be receptive to what you would have us to learn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we shine Fourth, in an evil world. I'm going to give you five principles. Uh, these are not exhaustive. You can probably break them down in a different number. You might be able to come up with four. You might be able to come up with seven. Uh, I came up with five, okay, because it's, it's a good number, okay? It's better than, th- better than three. I had three points last week, right? So I don't have to have as many sub points. So if you were there last week, you remember, you remember what I was saying. How do we shine forth in this evil world? I think the first principle is this, that we need to prioritize in our lives what Jesus called the greatest commandment. Turn back, if you would, to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and beginning at verse 34, Jesus is speaking to really a hostile audience. Uh, He is answering the questions of the scribes and Pharisees, the Sadducees. In fact, he has just silenced the Sadducees. In verse 34, Scripture says that when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. That wasn't a good thing. They, that, they had to figure out what to do. So they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, uh, one who was a, a, a specialist in Old Testament Jewish law, questioned him, asked him a question, testing him. This was not an honest question. I just really have this 
burning desire. I need to know this, Lord. Now, this was, this was a setup, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, this was given in a way that they thought would trip him up. If you, you couldn't answer this in whatever way you answered. You'd offend somebody, or you could be accused of, of um, perhaps some kind of heresy. But Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. To this hostile crowd trying to entrap Christ, he takes this question and he summarizes really the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your being. And love your neighbor as yourself. I believe that this great commandment is the very first principle we have to remember when we think about living in this age. How do we as Christians shine forth, giving glory to God the Father? The answer is that we love the Lord. We, we focus our attention on loving God with all of our being. Don't allow yourself to get sidetracked by issues, by cares, by concerns, by accusations, and lose or leave the first love, which should always be the Lord. We gather today to worship the Lord on this Lord's Day. Did you come together? Did you worship him? Or did you just go through the ritual? Do you love the Lord? Do you love him with all your heart? Do you love him with all your being? You say, well, how do you, how do you learn to love the Lord? Well, how do you learn to love anybody? You know, we, we've been convinced in our world that love is just a feeling. It's just kind of a warm, ushy-gushy feeling you get. And, and, and when you get that, you know, you don't know really how to describe it, but, it, but it's there. Love is not a feeling. It may have feelings with it, usually does. But love is a choice. It's a decision. And you learn to love the Lord your God the same way you love a human individual, your husband and your wife. You learn about them. You spend time with them. You talk to them. You think about them. You, you, you pay attention to what they're doing. You're concerned for them. You're involved with them. They're involved with you. We need to learn and go back to just the very basic truth that we need to love the Lord our God. We need to love him with all of our heart, with all of our being, with all of our mind. And then we need to love our neighbor as ourself. He said that's the second commandment that's like unto it. The New Testament frequently refers to our humbling ourselves and putting others first. Paul said, no man's ever hated his own flesh, but rather nourished it. Giving your neighbor the concern you would give yourself will impact how you respond to people. It will, it will impact how you deal with unsaved people around you. It will impact how you uh, the tone of your voice. It will impact what you say. It will, it will impact how you interact with them if you are loving them as yourself. 
So this first point may seem simplistic, but it's an important principle that we need to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our soul, and all of our mind, love our neighbors as ourselves. Sometimes I go into churches, you know, people will be complaining about their church because, oh, it's just dead. Uh, It's, you know, it's, there's just not a lot of life there. It's not a joy to be there. Why is that so? The church is not the four walls around us. The church is, is the body of people in this building. If that church is dead and dry, it's because the people's hearts in that church are dead and dry. And if, if others around you are dead and dry, it doesn't mean that you have to be dead and dry. It takes life to give life. And rather than complaining about there being so much deadness, show some life. You know, Les and I get to travel to a lot of different churches. And uh, sometimes we go into a church and, and we leave and say, wow, that was just great. I, I love that church. They were just, man, the people were so warm and friendly. You just, you, what? Why? It's because it was evident that there is a love for the Lord. I think I, I mentioned this one time recently when I was preaching here, but we were in a church and there was a man who came up to us before the service and was talking and he was saying things and it's hard to kind of describe our conversation, but he was, he was just talking about his love for the Lord. And sometimes when people say the things he said, the way he said them, you just kind of think, yeah, okay, this guy just kind of putting on, putting on a show, you know, he's trying to make us, you know, think he's really something great. He's just bragging on himself. I didn't feel that way at all in talking to this man. And in fact, uh, I was greatly blessed in talking because it was genuine. It was real. And I later met his family. All of his family loved, had the same attitude. Love the Lord. We're serving the Lord. And that church, when we left there, I mean, Leslie and I both said, man, that was just, that was just a great a great, great Sunday morning, a great, great day. These people just really demonstrate a love for God. And then sometimes you go to church and we leave and it's like, wow, what happened? <laughs> what was going on there? Uh, that was kind of difficult. What do you think? What do you think about that? Um, the difference is a people who love God. No matter how dark this world gets, no matter who's in office, no matter what the issues are of the day, you can always love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and you can love your neighbor as yourself. That's the first and great commandment. No matter how dark this world gets, don't forget that. There's a second issue, second principle, The Bible tells us we should live in this world without being of this world, without being of it. John chapter 17, our Lord's high priestly prayer. John chapter 17, if you turn there. Jesus, of course, is praying here uh, right up before the crucifixion. Beginning at verse 9, Jesus says, I pray for them. 
I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. So he's praying for us believers. Uh, he says, now I, verse 10, 11, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. And then he says here a little bit later, I have given them your word, verse uh, 14, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Because as you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Those prepositions in that passage are powerful. God has saved us out of the world, out of this world's system, out of this world's bondage. But we are still in the world. He didn't save us and take us home. He saved us and kept us here to live. But he says, I pray that they're not of the world because I want to send them back into the world. So important to realize that we as believers live in this world, no matter how bad the world gets. But we're not to be of it. John later in his epistle said to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Paul told the Colossians to set your, uh, uh, seek those things which are above. To set your affection on things above, not things below. And yet, in spite of that, it's one of the most difficult things that believers struggle with to not be conformed to this world. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. And be not conformed to the world. Don't be in the world's mold, don't be in its pattern but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does it mean to love this world? It's easy just to point to outward things and say, well, that's worldliness. You know, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with those who do, and say, okay, I'm, therefore I'm not worldly. There is truth in the fact that our outward behavior does reflect the inward condition of our heart, often shows the love of our heart, but worldliness is far more than just the outward issues. Worldliness involves what's in our heart. What are our desires? What are our priorities? What are our loves? What, what do we wish for? What do we long for? What are the cravings of our heart? Culture changes. Circumstances around us change. But we need to be conformed to, to Christ, to his word not to the world in which we live. It's sad today to look at Christians sometimes who are, who are in their behaviors and are just as worse than the world in their pursuit of certain entertainments, pleasures, their response to others, their arrogant spirit. Read some of the, some of the discussions sometimes on social media and sometimes Christians are as sharp and nasty as anyone in the world could be. There's just a, 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 a great tendency today 
among God's people to, to want to be conformed to this world. You know, the Bible says we're to be transformed. We're, we're not, we, we are in it, but we're not to be of it. We're to be different. We should be different. So we need to shine as lights. We need to prioritize the greatest commandment. We need to live in this world, but not be of this world. Thirdly, we need to guard our minds from this world's philosophies. Colossians chapter 2 and uh, verse 8. Paul writes here to beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You know, he, he says here a little earlier in verse 4, he says, I say this lest anyone should deceive you with pers- persuasive words. Paul knows that we live in a world where we are surrounded and immersed in ungodly, worldly philosophies. What he calls here as uh, empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world. We live in a world that, that lives by certain standards and certain principles that oftentimes are, are contradictory to the standards and the principles of the Word of God. And it is hard when we are, 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 are surrounded and immersed in this culture to keep our minds clear and to, and to not be subtly deceived and tricked into follow, falling into the world's error. That's why we need to be in the Word of God. That's why we need to be assembling with God's people. We need to be filling our mind with truth rather than error. It's stunning today to see how quickly many churches are forsaking doctrine and the Word of God in order to be woke or popular or to be appealing to this generation Some well-known evangelicals recently have made the news because of their statements downplaying homosexuality, uh, trying to figure out a way to to allow transgenderism to exist within the church. There really seems to be no stopping point with some of these churches. Rather than adopting the world's values and the world's philosophies, the Bible tells us we are to speak the truth in love. We are to confront error, not to blend it into our lives and figure out how to make it work in our life. Now, don't think that you are above being influenced. If you fill your mind constantly with the things of this world, by things you watch, by the entertainment, by the books you read, by the whatever, the education you receive, by the people you are around, don't think that's not going to influence you. It will. Now, maybe, I'm not saying you'll become a, you know, an unbeliever or an apostate overnight, but, but those things affect you. And, and sometimes it's, it's, I've even stopped in my life and sometimes just looked at things and how the world around me has affected me and changed my thinking or affected my thinking. I remember when I was working my way through uh, seminary. I worked, when I was in South Carolina, I, I, I 
was working at a, uh, it was a gas station, car wash combination. Uh, they would hire, uh, they paid super sub-minimum wage. I mean, minimum wage would have looked like a fortune compared to what they paid people. And they would get people out of mental institutions and jails and people who could not get jobs anywhere else to, to work uh, at this car wash the language there, I was an assistant manager, and the language there was atrocious. And, I, and let me tell you, I, I went to public school, so I, I thought I had heard it all. But I tell you, they, they used words, I, I mean, in combinations that I'd never even dreamed of. And they just, it was amazing. It was, it was horrible. And I was working like 10 and 12 hours a day. Uh, I'd go to church on Sunday, but that was about it because that's all the time my schedule allowed for. And, you know, by the end of that summer, I found myself, when I got angry, some of those words would come into my mind. Hey, I'm a student studying for ministry, getting ready to preach the gospel, and, you know, I stub my toe on something, and I think the first thing that comes to my mind is what I've been hearing spoken all week long. Don't think that your immersion in this world is not going to impact you. It does. You can't avoid it. Well, you can't avoid it through immersing yourself in the Word of God, by washing your mind and hearts faithfully in the Word of God. And I realized back then, early in, in college, man, I needed to be in the Word. If I was going to be out in the world this much, I needed to make sure I was in the Word. Washing my heart, washing my mind afresh with the truth from God's word. Satan is subtle. Error is sticky. And it's hard to shake, even when you recognize it to be error. We're told to guard our hearts because out of it are the issues of life. And Jude describes false teachers as speaking great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Peter says they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They will exploit you with deceptive words. We need to guard our minds from the world's philosophies. So, if we're to shine as lights in this world, we need to prioritize the great commandment. We need to be in the world, but not of it. We need to guard our minds from the world's philosophies. Fourth, we need to frequent, not forsake, the assembling of ourselves together. Hebrews chapter 10, a verse that I think we all know probably very well. But Hebrews chapter 10, I want to begin reading verse 24. says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, so much the more as you see the day approaching. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. The assembly of believers is the church. Uh, the word we have in the New Testament that oftentimes is translated as church is the word ecclesia, means the ones that called out ones. It's the assembly. We assemble together to worship God. We assemble together to study his word. We assemble together to fellowship. We assemble together to pray. We assemble together to break bread, to, to remember uh, his death on the cross. Peter, or Paul called the church in 1 Timothy 3.15, he, he calls the church the pillar and ground of the truth. 
And notice he says, we are not to forsake this assembly, as is the manner of some. People already did that, it's not that important. But he says, no, much more as you see the day approaching. What day? The day of, of the Lord's return. The day of Christ. The closer we get to the day of Christ, the closer we get to the Lord's return, the more faithful we need to be assembling together. What is amazing to me, I mean, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that God gave to the church pastors and teachers for the edification of the saints, uh, to, to build us up, that we would not be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And yet, in spite, of, in, in spite of the admonition here to assemble ourselves together much more as you see the day approaching, as we get towards the coming of Christ, churches are assembling less and less. I think today, I don't remember the, the exact statistics, but here within the United States of the people who profess to be Christians, and I think this was among people who claim to be evangelical Christians, the number who faithfully attend church at least once a week is somewhere in the 30 percentile. I think it was 38 percent, something like that. Maybe, maybe close to 40, but not very high. If you would ask the question, how many of you attend church more than one time a week? That number would completely fall. Midweek prayer time in most churches have been eliminated. Or some type of midweek activity. Um, you know, one of the difficult things with a missionary now is it used to be you go into an area and you can have, some church would have you Sunday morning, some would have you Sunday night, some would have you on a midweek service, maybe their midweek service on a Tuesday, you could get a Tuesday and a Wednesday. Here in the West, it's almost impossible to find anyone that has a midweek service um, and where they'll have a missionary. And now, many independent Bible-preaching churches are doing away with the Sunday evening services as well. Uh, it used to be, I remember growing up in town, there was a liberal Methodist church in our town. And, I mean, it was well known. It was a small town. Everybody knows everything. And, you know, this was, this church was known as being extremely liberal, denying the most basic doctrines of the Word of God. But it was a nice little church in a wealthy area, part of town, and a lot of wealthy people would go there. And the preacher would preach a little sermonette, not that he wrote, but that was given to him, something he was, his denomination had given him to, to read, and he would read this little homily, homily little 10, 20-minute uh, little sermonette. And uh, I, I remember one time as a kid, we were discussing this, and someone was, happened to know how much this pastor was getting paid. And um, it wouldn't seem like a lot today, but back in that day, I mean, it seemed like he was getting paid a fortune. And I thought, man, this is a pretty good gig. I mean, you know, you, just, you go in, you show up for, for an hour, you, you read something somebody else has written, uh, you smile, you say a few prayers, shake a few hands. Uh, man, that's... That's not why I went into ministry, by the way. 
that wasn't the influence that, that drove me into ministry because I realized that's not the case in fundamental circles, okay? But I thought, wow, that's, that's unbelievable. But that's the case now in many Bible-preaching churches. It's getting hard to find churches that have Sunday evening services now in many parts of our country. Now, let me be gracious here and give some benefit Benefit of the doubt? Benefit of the doubt? Is that the right way to say it? I realize that there's an aspect of sometimes things become cultural. And, for example, Sunday school began as a way to educate children and as well as to teach them the Bible. And the Bible was often used as the book to teach them to read. But it was used later on to become a great outreach. In this last generation, uh, Sunday school was a very effective outreach. Now, I realize that sometimes... In our society, in some places you go, it's not maybe as an effective, as effective tool as it once was. Sunday evening services began uh, really back in the 1800s as evangelistic outreaches. They didn't have television, didn't have other entertainment, and it was the way, you know, unsafe people wouldn't wake up and go to church in the morning, so they'd have morning service was primarily geared for believers, and the evening service was more evangelistic services. And great preachers, people who were great orators, drew great crowds, and it was a great uh, evangelistic outreach. And, but that changed, and Sunday evening services became a great Bible teaching time for our churches. Now, I'm not against adapting and changing things. I mean, Tri-City has, has done that for years with small groups and other things and been, you know, always trying to figure out what's the best way. How can we do the work and do it in a way that's the most effective? And that, that's, that's great. That's great. But if you're going to do away with some of these things, you've got to replace it with something else. It's not that people are more biblically literate today than they were 50 years ago, and we just don't need to teach them as much. I mean, people are very biblically illiterate today. More than ever, there needs to be programs or, or, or services or opportunities to teach people the Word of God, not less. And that's what Hebrews says. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Edify one another. Encourage one another. The much more as you see the day of the Lord's return. As you see the day of the Lord coming. As we get closer, we need to be more frequent in the Lord's house. Not forsake it. If we are to shine as lights. And then finally, we need to remember that the answer ultimately is Jesus Christ. The book of Jude, the little book of Jude, talks about the falling away, the apostasy. He exhorts in verse 20 in Jude, to build yourselves up, brethren, he says, on your most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. In other words, keep the great commandment. Love God Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, On some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh, being in the world but not of the world. Jude exhorts us to remember that we live in a world of people who are blind and lost, who need Christ. On some, we need to just 
be patient, have compassion on others, we need to more urgently pull them out of that fire because their need is Jesus Christ. You know, if I walked in here tonight and I had a cane and I had on some dark glasses and I was walking around feeling around, you would assume something. I hopefully, you would assume not that I had lost my mind, but you would assume that something had happened to me and I'd lost my sight, that I was blind. When you see people acting and listen to people acting in this world the way they're acting, I mean, use just, just unreasonable. I, I listen to sometimes people and I start thinking, do, do they really believe that? Have they lost their mind? They're crazy. They're blind. They're not crazy, they're blind. They're spiritually blind. And they're stumbling around trying to make sense out of a world they don't understand. Trying to act like they understand it. We need to realize that the problem is their need of Christ. Their answer is Jesus. And never lose sight of that. We need to be giving forth the gospel. That's what the world needs. You know, sometimes we get disillusioned. I remember when I was pastoring in California, we had a candidate running for governor that was, was a conservative. Uh, he was a, uh, had been, a, I think, a television commentator or radio commentator. Very eloquent, very good speaker, and it looked like he might actually win in California the governor's race. And then some local TV station caught him on camera going into a, some kind of strip club or place like that. People were devastated. It was sad because we thought he would, would have been a great governor. But it doesn't, shouldn't surprise you. Because just because a person is conservative doesn't mean they're saved. Their need is not to have a conservative point of view, although that would certainly would help. But their need ultimately is Jesus Christ. And the answer is Christ. The answer is, is the Lord. The darker the night, the brighter we need to shine. The more vocal we need to be with gospel witness. The more we need to speak the truth in love. The more we need to be radiant testimonies of God's grace, pointing men and women to Jesus Christ. In that passage where Jesus said, talked about being the light of the world, being the light of the world. He said, we are the light of the world. And he said, no man takes a light and hides it under a bushel, hides it under a basket. It doesn't make sense. I mean, you light a candle so you can see, right? You don't light it so you can cover it up. We are, we are to be the light of Christ. We are to let our light shine forth. I'd heard a story not too long ago, a lady was sharing a story and talking about how that she had been working in a place and out in the world, and she seemed like a really nice lady, didn't seem to be anything very, you know, repulsive or, or hostile about her, and she was just trying to be a good testimony where she worked, and she did not go along with a lot of the office, office gossip, and she did not, you know, do some of the things other people in the work were doing, but she tried to just keep a great attitude and, and be a sweet spirit and be a sweet Christian testimony. And all she got in response was just angry responses, hostile responses, people making fun of her, criticizing her. Uh, it got so bad, eventually she, she quit. It wasn't long after that she was visiting a sister church in the area and she recognized a man. And as she went up and they started talking, she realized he worked in her office. He was a Christian. 
but she never knew it. No one else ever knew it because he hid his light under a, a basket. He did not let his light shine. God tells us that we are to shine in this perverse and wicked generation. How, how do we shine? Well, I gave you some of them right here. We're to prioritize the great commandment, love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, love our neighbor as ourselves. We're to live in this world but not be of it. You need to guard your mind from the world's philosophies. You need to frequent, not forsake, the assembling of yourselves together. And you need to remember, always the answer is Jesus Christ. As you go into the work week this week, think about letting your light shine. How can you love your neighbor? How can you demonstrate that you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind? How can you be on guard against the philosophies of, of this world? What are you going to do about frequenting the Lord's house this week? Be in the word. Remember the answers of Christ. How can you present Christ? Ask God to help you to let your light shine. The world's going to get darker, folks. Uh, it's, going to get, it's going to get worse before it gets better, before Jesus comes. That's okay. We just shine. It's always shine. If the world's dark and you're a believer, it's always shining. There's always light around where you live, okay? Because the light of Christ is within you. Let your light shine and be a radiant testimony in this world in which we live.